I want to encourage you to turn uh, in your Bibles at this time to Luke chapter 6. We'll be considering specifically verses 20 through 26. This week we are finishing our consideration of Jesus' beatitudes and these corresponding woes that he speaks to this, this crowd of people, which consists of the disciples, the apostles, and a generic group of individuals. As I mentioned last week, this has been traditionally referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, or Sermon on the, the Plains, excuse me, as a lot of similarities with the Sermon on the Mount at light of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's likely as a different occurrence where Jesus is reusing some of that, that same material. The reason why it's called a Sermon on the Plains is, is because I believe in verse 17, uh, Luke makes that detail, or gives us that detail that Jesus is on a level place, this sort of plateau on his way down from the mountain. So Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May our God write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, this passage begins with Jesus. Jesus, who's, who's teaching, contained gra this gravitas, this authority that the people had, had not seen before in their own religious leaders. Lifting his eyes upon the disciples. Now, I think we all know the power of eye contact, whether it be as a public speaker to an audience or even on an individual level. Eye contact is the power of creating a rather intense personal connection. And when you are talking to someone who is of a higher status than you, oftentimes this can feel rather uncomfortable when you lock eyes with that person. In such moments, there's that urge to, to turn away one's gaze. I would imagine the disciples in this moment, as Jesus has, has gathered his disciples, his apostles right before him, and is looking at them in their eyes, are a bit uncomfortable. What is he going to say? Blessing, curse, good or bad? I would imagine that the, the clamor of the crowd, we saw uh, last week in the passage before this, that there's a great crowd here beyond just the disciples and apostles who are gathered here uh, to hear Jesus. I'm sure that the clamor of this crowd would have faded to the background 
as Jesus locked eyes with his disciples. Well, it's not just the manner of Jesus' teaching that's arresting, that that captures our attention or their attention, but also the, the topic, the content of his teaching. We see that Jesus is blessing his disciples. That's what a beatitude is. It's a blessing. And I mentioned last week that a common misconception when it comes to the the Beatitudes is to read them as exhortations, as if Jesus is commanding his people in these Beatitudes. But that's not at all what Jesus is doing. He is blessing his people, telling them that they are presently blessed, not telling them to do anything, but telling them that they are blessed presently. No doubt he'll go on to exhort his disciples to do things that that are similar to what he says here in this passage. But it's not an exhortation, it's a blessing. This royal pronouncement upon his people. And the main point, the main idea that kind of ties all of these beatitudes together is that our blessedness does not reside in circumstances, but in our membership in the kingdom of God. And how hard that is for us to remember. If we're trusting in Christ, we have this blessing. The same blessing that's being pronounced upon the disciples. But how often we forget that, we push that aside, and we try to find our happiness, our blessedness, in circumstances. This is a very, very timely, very important word for us to hear. In fact, the the hymn we'll sing after this, uh, the sermon... It's titled, It Is Well With My Soul. You may have heard this before. It's a, a, a pretty popular, uh, famous hymn. It was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. And he lived in the mid to latter half of the 19th century. And he had a sort of Job-like experience in, in life. Tragedy after tragedy. It all began with his four-year-old son dying of scarlet fever. And then shortly after that, Uh, He was living in Chicago at the time, and he experienced the great Chicago fire of 1871. Many of his real estate properties burned to the ground, which would have been a great financial loss for him. And then just two years later, he was going uh, on a trip with his wife and four daughters to England, and he had some business to take care of before joining his family in England, so he sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him. And the ship that his family was on ended up sinking. His four daughters died, and his wife survived, and ended up making it to Wales and sent a telegram back to uh, to him, and he boarded the next ship possible to get and be with his wife. And it's reported that when he was crossing the ocean and got to the place, the approximate place where his four daughters died, he penned this hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. There's one phrase I want to point your attention to in this hymn. It says, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. I'm sure at that time on the sea, it probably was cloudy. It was a good picture of what was going on in his heart. But to paraphrase this hymn in light of this passage, I think we can say that Horatio learned that his blessedness did not reside in circumstances, but his ultimate blessedness resided in his membership in God's kingdom, which cannot be taken away. It's that idea, that topic that I want us to focus our attention on this evening, that our blessedness as the people of God does not reside in our circumstances, whether they be poor or well, 
but our membership in God's everlasting kingdom. So we will consider these Beatitudes by uh, especially focusing on the last three as we considered the first one uh, last week in, in some detail. And then we'll consider the corresponding woes by again giving our attention specifically to the last three of those woes. So first, if you look with me at this section on the Beatitudes, if I were to summarize this section, I think it would go like this. Blessed are those who are members of my kingdom even when your circumstances are difficult. I think that's what ties all these Beatitudes together. Blessed are you, Jesus is saying, if you are members of my kingdom even when your circumstances are difficult, dire. You'll notice that Jesus is listing these circumstantially uh, difficult conditions. He addresses poverty. He addresses hunger. He addresses sorrow. He addresses persecution and suffering. These are not things that we associate with a state of happiness or a state of blessedness. It's inherently paradoxical. Yet Jesus is saying, even if your life is marked by these states, you can still call yourself blessed if you're a member of my kingdom. So again, we, I'm going to jump over that first beatitude since we considered it in de, uh, detail last week. So if you look with me at verse 21, in the second beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the hungry. Think for a moment, what is hunger? Hunger is a, a biological response reminding us that we stand in need of material means. Food. We can hardly go two to three hours without this reminder. Hunger pains coming, reminding us that we are completely dependent upon food. Now, if we broaden our conception of hunger out a little bit, we have many hunger pains. We have many needs, not just for food, but it might be for Employment. It might be related to one's children. It might be related to one's finances, one's housing. The list could go on and on and on. We have many material needs. And the hunger pains for these needs isn't a rumbling in the stomach, but it could be in the form of anxiety, worry, distress, depression, reminding us that we are needy people. We have many material needs that we stand in need of. One of the purposes that the Lord permits these into our life is to teach us that we ultimately stand in need of God. God is the one, the giver of every good and perfect gift. We are completely dependent upon him. We are creatures, creatures made by a creator. And such hunger pains increase and exercise our faith. Think of those moments as sort of being a workout regimen for our faith. Moments where we have to exercise faith. We have to trust in promises. Promises that we can't see with our eye. We have to believe with our ears. And when we do that, our faith increases. Our faith grows. Our grip on God's promises tighten as we go through such periods in our life. 
Ultimately, however, if you see the second half of this beatitude, Jesus pointing us forward. He's saying, for you shall be satisfied. For you shall be satisfied. He's pointing his disciples to the consummation of the kingdom. Last week, I I mentioned how this kingdom of God has both a present and a future reality. The first beatitude, Jesus is focusing on the present reality. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of God. Now, in these last three beatitudes, you'll notice the tense switches. It's you shall, you shall, you shall. Jesus is focusing on the consummation of the kingdom, the great hope that we are looking forward to in the age to come. He says, for you shall be satisfied. He's saying in the consummation of of the kingdom, we won't have needs like we experience them in this life. We won't have hunger pains. We won't have distress, anxiety, worry. We won't experience the, the distress of living in a fallen world. He's telling us that we are to be a people of hope, a people who, whose eyes are fixed forward to where we're headed. We're a pilgrim people, a pilgrim people who are on a destination. So Jesus is, looking, is, is pointing us, us forward. And this is great comfort, and a great comfort in a society that is uh, riddled with distress, riddled with evil, riddled with so many um, horrible things that there's no utopia promise for us in this age, but we do have a great promise of an age to come where there will be complete blessedness for the people of God. Well, Jesus continues. He says, blessed are you who weep now. Who weep now. Sorrow. We all, we all have and will continue to experience sorrow. Some to greater levels than others, but we all experience sorrow. People get sick, people die, tragedies occur. Human beings are capable of of great acts of evil against other human beings. But there's also lesser acts of of uh, other things that, that create sorrow in our hearts. When things don't turn out the way we want them to turn out. When plans change, when expectations, our expectations don't come to fruition. Sorrow, sorrow comes. So oftentimes the things that, that cause us to weep in this life, the things that cause those in, close to us to weep in our life, they seem sort of absurd or illogical. They leave us thinking, life shouldn't be this way. It makes the universe think, uh, seem chaotic, contradictory, tragic. I mean, think of some of the things that happen in this world. You know, why, why does the the young mom of, of three children who gets in a car crash with, by a drunk driver, why do they die and the drunk driver lives? Why does a young child who gets sexually abused and the predator gets away with it? Why? Why does the young person who has so much potential get the terminal illness? Why does the conscientious, responsible individual always find himself behind the eight ball, even though thing, these things occur beyond his control. Why? It seems absurd and illogical. Why do these things happen? Well, the Bible is no stranger to lament, to sorrow. You read books such as Job or Ecclesiastes or many of the Psalms. The Bible is very acquainted with sorrow, deep sorrow. And God never gives us a specific answer to the why. 
behind such events in this life. But he does point his people to the cross. The cross, which I've mentioned before, is that ultimate paradox, which according to one perspective is the greatest tragedy, but according to another perspective is the greatest gift. But it also, according to human perspective, seems to be the most absurd illogicality ever. God's great plan in, in history is to send his son to suffer and die? That seems utterly absurd. But yet, yet it's through the cross that we have an open door to the kingdom of God, a kingdom whereby we can tr- entrust ourselves to a king who promises to make good in all the chaos in our life, a king who points us forward to the consummation of a kingdom when our sorrow will be turned to laughter, when our, the tears that we shed in this life will be wiped away, and we will possess complete joy and happiness such that we can't even begin to fathom in this life. Again, Jesus pointing us forward, for you shall laugh, for you shall laugh. Well, in verse 22, Jesus goes on and he says, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. And then he goes on to say that when you're persecuted, when people spurn your name as evil, you should even rejoice and skip for joy. The word that Luke uses there is a word that's used elsewhere to refer to a a calf, a young calf skipping joyfully. That's the response Jesus says. Talk about paradoxical. When you're persecuted, rejoice. Well, why? Well, first he says that when you experience such persecution, you stand in line with a great tradition. The prophets of old, the great prophets of old, the men of God, they they were treated in a similar way. But again, the second reason is this future-orientated reason. He says, for your reward will be great. Yes, life might be hard. Yes, this might be, this life might be characterized by the way of the cross, but we're looking forward to the way of glory. Your reward will be great. Again, what Jesus is doing here in these Beatitudes, he's telling us that our blessedness does not lie in circumstances. You can be poor, you can be hungry, not just literally, but even metaphorically, you have many needs, many material needs. You can be, you have a life full of sorrow, you can be persecuted, yet you can still call yourself blessed because you're members of my kingdom. That's his main point that he's trying to get across to us in, in these Beatitudes. And Jesus makes the same point then in, in this section on the woes, but he does so in an inverted manner. So if you direct your attention now to the section on the woes, we can summarize this section in an inverted manner. The summary would go like this. Woe to those who are not members of my kingdom, even when your circumstances are great. Woe to those who are not members of my kingdom, even when your circumstances are great. Again, completely paradoxical. Ordinarily, we associate wealth, satisfaction, meaning a lot of our material needs seem to be met. Laughter. Being spoken well of in this life, we associate those things with a a state of happiness, a state of blessedness. But Jesus says, not so fast, not so fast. 
Don't equate those things with my ultimate blessing. Because if one is not a member of my kingdom, even if you have everything that this life has to offer, you're still in a woeful state. So Jesus says, again, uh, moving on to that second woe since we considered the first one last week, he says, woe to you who are full now. Again, one, who might, one might be full, not just literally, but in a more metaphorical sense. A lot of their earthly material needs are met. But if they're not a member of the kingdom of God, they will be eternally hungry. What do I mean? Well, they will have their greatest need be left unmet. That is a mediator to mediate between a sinful person and a holy God for all of eternity. Eternally hungry. Jesus says, Woe to you who, um, to you who, who laugh now. Woe to you who laugh now. Again, life may seem to be pretty good. Rather than sorrow, it's laughter, it's joy, it's kind of good tidings all around. But again, if you're not a member of my kingdom, you're looking forward to utter sorrow that you can't even fathom in this life. You know, the good things in this life, in a lot of ways, can be thought of as a mirage of the consummation of the kingdom, blessedness that we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. All those good things that we enjoy. It's a small, faint picture, taste of heavenly bliss. But the inverse is also true. The great acts of evil, pain, distress, that's a small mirage picture of when God's wrath will be utterly poured out in eternal judgment. Woe to you who laugh now. And Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. He's saying, being well-liked is not always a good thing. Case in point, the false prophets of old. The ones who completely acted contrary to the will of God who tickled the people's ears, but led the people into utter idolatry and ultimately condemnation. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Now I mentioned Jesus being intentionally paradoxical, both in the the Beatitudes and in these woes. And the point, the point in him saying such things, such paradoxical statements, is to wake us up, to grab our attention, as it were. Again, we don't associate a state of blessedness with poverty, with hunger, with sorrow, with persecution. We don't normally associate a woeful state with wealth, with needs being met, with laughter, with being spoken well of. And so Jesus is wanting to grab our attention to splash our, our faces with cold water, as it were. To make us slow down, make his disciples actually ponder what's being said. So that we would find our blessedness, not in the, circum- the fleeting circumstances of our life, which oftentimes are a pendulum. But to fix our blessedness and our membership in the kingdom of God, which has both that present reality, which we experience in part, but 
we are looking forward to the consummated reality in the life to come. In fact, I recently read, uh, I was recently reading, and the author was citing how, how a number of social scientists and how there's, there's been a sort of consensus among social scientists that to have a, a happier, fulfilled life, one needs to have ordinarily three things. Community, family, friends, uh, support, love, a sense of belonging in that community. A job or a calling whereby one, one has a sense of purpose, uh, an avenue and opportunity to serve and love one's neighbor in that community. And then lastly, a worldview to make sense of pain and suffering in one's life. I think as Christians, we would say that third mark is, is the most important. That worldview whereby we can, we can attach our blessedness, our happiness to something beyond the pain and suffering that marks this fallen world. But it's very important, very important to, to realize that what Jesus is saying is objectively true. Because when we start talking about blessedness, happiness, it, there's a subjective realm to that, obviously. And you know, a lot of atheists, especially since uh, Sigmund Freud, will, will say, oh yeah, Christians, their, their whole conception of Christianity is just this psychological projection that they put forth to help them get through difficult times of hardship, of pain and suffering. So really, religion is just in the realm of the subjective. It's just this projection that we put forward to help us psychologically get through suffering. I'll remind you what Jesus is saying is objectively true. He did stand on that level place 2,000 years ago, looking at his disciples in the eyes and blessed them. And if you are trusting in Christ, that blessing is yours today. And you are a member of the everlasting kingdom of God. And we're looking forward to that great day of consummation. So, brothers and sisters, this evening, if you are poor or rich, if you are needy or secure, laughing or sorrowful, persecuted or well-liked, no matter what your present circumstances are, know that Jesus is calling you blessed because you are a member of his kingdom.